Chapter Twenty One B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Twenty One B. Lincoln and Horace Greeley, the President's answer to the prayer of twenty millions of people. Conference between Lincoln and Greeley. Emancipation resolved on. The Preliminary Proclamation. Lincoln's Account of It. One of the severest opponents of President Lincoln's policy regarding slavery was Horace Greeley. He criticized Lincoln freely in the New York Tribune, of which he was editor, and said many harsh and bitter things of the administration. Lincoln took the abuse good-naturedly, saying on one occasion, It reminds me of the big fellow whose little wife was wont to beat him over the head without resistance. When remonstrated with, the man said, Let her alone. It don't hurt me, and it does her a power of good. In August 1862, Mr. Greeley published a letter in the New York Tribune, headed The Prayer of Twenty Millions of People, in which he urged the President, with extreme emphasis, to delay the act of emancipation no longer. Lincoln answered the vehement entreaty in the following calm, firm, and explicit words. Executive Mansion, Washington, Friday, August twenty-second, 1862 Honorable Horace Greeley Dear Sir, I have just read yours of the 19th instant addressed to myself through the New York Tribune. If there be in it any statements or assumptions of fact which I may know to be erroneous, I do not now, and here, controvert them. If there be any inferences which I believe to be falsely drawn, I do not now, and here, argue against them. If there be perceptible in it an impatient and dictatorial tone, I waive it, in deference to an old friend whose heart I have always supposed to be right. As to the policy— I seem to be pursuing, as you say, I have not meant to leave any one in doubt. I would save the Union. I would save it in the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be, the Union as it was. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object is to save the Union, and not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race I do because I believe it helps to save the Union, and what I forbear I forbear because I do not believe it would help to save the Union. I shall do less whenever I believe what I am doing hurts the cause, and shall do more whenever I believe doing more will help the cause. I shall try to correct errors when shown to be errors and I shall adopt new views so fast as they shall appear to be true views. I have here stated my purpose, according to my view of official duty, 
and I intend no modification of my oft-expressed personal wish that all men everywhere could be free. Yours, A. Lincoln Mr. Greeley, being dissatisfied with Lincoln's explanation, and the Tribune still teeming with complaints and criticisms of the administration, Lincoln requested Mr. Greeley to come to Washington and make known in person his complaints, to the end that they might be obviated if possible. The editor of the Tribune came. Lincoln said, "'You complain of me. What have I done or omitted to do which has provoked the hostility of the Tribune?' The reply was, "'You should issue a proclamation abolishing slavery.' Lincoln answered, "'Suppose I do that. There are now twenty thousand of our muskets on the shoulders of Kentuckians, who are bravely fighting our battles. Every one of them will be thrown down or carried over to the rebels.' The reply was, "'Let them do it. The cause of the Union will be stronger if Kentucky should secede with the rest.' than it is now." Lincoln answered, "'Oh, I can't think that.'" It is evident that these solicitations and counselings from outside persons were unnecessary and idle. Lincoln's far-seeing and practical mind had already grasped, more surely than had his would-be advisers, the ultimate wisdom and justice of the emancipation of the slaves. But he was resolved to do nothing rashly. He would wait till the time was ripe, and then abolish slavery on grounds that would be approved throughout the world. He would destroy slavery as a necessary step to the preservation of the Union. In the first year of the war he had said to a Southern Unionist, who warned him against meddling with slavery, "'You must not expect me to give up this government without playing my last card.' This last card was undoubtedly the freeing of the slaves. And when the time came, Lincoln played it unhesitatingly and triumphantly. How strong a card it was may be judged by a statement made in Congress by Mr. Ashmore, a representative from South Carolina, who said shortly before the war, "'The South can sustain more men in the field than the North can. Her four millions of slaves alone will enable her to support an army of half a million. This view makes the issue plain. If the South could maintain armies in the field supported, or partly supported, by slave labor, it was as much the right and duty of the government to destroy that support as to destroy an establishment for the manufacture of arms or munitions of war for the Southern armies. The logic of events had demonstrated the necessity and justice of the measure and Lincoln now had with him a cabinet practically united in its favor. The case was well stated by Secretary Wells, perhaps the most cool-headed and conservative member of Lincoln's cabinet, at a cabinet meeting held six or eight weeks after the emancipation measure had been brought forward by the President. Mr. Wells, as he relates in his diary, pointed out the strong exercise of power involved in the proposal and denied the power of the executive to take such a step under ordinary conditions. But, said Mr. Wells, the rebels themselves had invoked war on the subject of slavery, had appealed to arms, and must abide the consequences. Mr. Wells admitted that it was an extreme exercise of war powers, which he believed justifiable under the circumstances, 
and in view of the condition of the country and the magnitude of the contest. The slaves were now an element of strength to the rebels, were laborers, producers, and army attendants. They were considered as property by the rebels, and if property they were subject to confiscation. If not property, but persons residing in the insurrectionary region, we should invite them as well as the whites to unite with us in putting down the rebellion. This view was in the main concurred in by the cabinet members present, and greatly heartened the President in his course. On the 22nd of September, 1862, he issued what is known as the Preliminary Proclamation. The text of this momentous document is as follows. I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States of America, and Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy thereof, do hereby proclaim and declare that hereafter, as heretofore, the war will be prosecuted for the object of practically restoring the constitutional relations between the United States and each of the states and the people thereof, in which states that relation is or may be suspended or disturbed, that it is my purpose, upon the next meeting of Congress, to again recommend the adoption of a practical measure, tendering pecuniary aid to the free acceptance or rejection of all slave states so called the people whereof may not be then in rebellion against the united states and which states may then have voluntarily adopted or thereafter may voluntarily adopt immediate or gradual abolishment of slavery within their respective limits and that the effort to colonize persons of african descent with their consent upon this continent or elsewhere with the previously obtained consent of the governments existing there will be continued that on the first day of january in the year of our lord one thousand eight hundred and sixty three all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the united states shall be then thenceforward and forever free and the executive government of the united states including the military and naval authority thereof will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. That the executive will, on the first day of January aforesaid, by proclamation, designate the states and parts of states, if any, in which the people thereof respectively shall then be in rebellion against the United States and the fact that any state or the people thereof shall on that day be in good faith represented in the congress of the united states by members chosen thereto at elections wherein a majority of the qualified voters of such state shall have participated shall in the absence of strong countervailing testimony be deemed conclusive evidence that such state and the people thereof are not in rebellion against the united states that attention is hereby called to an act of congress entitled an act to make an additional article of war approved march thirteenth eighteen sixty two and which act is in the words and figures following be it enacted by the senate and house of representatives of the united states of america in congress assembled that hereafter the following shall be promulgated as an additional article of war for the government of the army of the united states and shall be obeyed and observed as such 
Article. All officers or persons in the military or naval service of the United States are prohibited from employing any of the forces under their respective commands for the purpose of returning fugitives from service or labor who may have escaped from any persons to whom such service or labor is claimed to be due, and any officer who shall be found guilty by a court-martial of violating this article shall be dismissed from the service. Section 2. And be it further enacted, that this act shall take effect from and after its passage. Also to the ninth and tenth sections of an act entitled An Act to Suppress Insurrection, to punish treason and rebellion, to seize and confiscate property of rebels, and for other purposes, approved July 17, 1862, and which sections are in the words and figures following. Section 9. And be it further enacted, that all slaves of persons who shall hereafter be engaged in rebellion against the government of the United States, or who shall in any way give aid or comfort thereto, escaping from such persons and taking refuge within the lines of the army, and all slaves captured from such persons or deserted by them, and coming under the control of the government of the United States, and all slaves of such persons found on or being within any place occupied by rebel forces, and afterwards occupied by the forces of the United States, shall be deemed captives of war, and shall be forever free of their servitude, and not again held as slaves. Section 10. And be it further enacted, that no slave escaping into any state territory or the District of Columbia, from any other state, shall be delivered up, or in any way impeded or hindered of his liberty except for crime, or some offence against the laws, unless the person claiming said fugitive shall first make oath that the person to whom the labour or service of such fugitive is alleged to be due is his lawful owner, and has not borne arms against the United States in the present rebellion, nor in any way given aid and comfort thereto. And no person engaged in the military or naval service of the United States shall, under any pretense whatever, assume to decide on the validity of the claim of any person to the service or labour of any other person, or surrender up any such person to the claimant, on pain of being dismissed from the service. And I do hereby enjoin upon and order all persons engaged in the military and naval service of the United States to observe, obey, and enforce, within their respective spheres of service, the act and sections above recited and the executive will in due time recommend that all the citizens of the united states who shall have remained loyal thereto throughout the rebellion shall upon the restoration of the constitutional relation between the united states and their respective states and people if that relation shall have been suspended or disturbed be compensated for all losses by acts of the united states including the loss of slaves in witness whereof I have hereunto set my hand, and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington, this twenty-second day of September, in the year of our Lord, one thousand eight hundred and sixty-two, and of the independence of the United States, the eighty-seventh. By the President. Abraham Lincoln. 
William H. Seward, Secretary of State. Lincoln's own account of this proclamation, and of the steps that led to it, is given as reported by Mr. F. B. Carpenter. It had, said Lincoln, got to be midsummer, 1862. Things had gone on from bad to worse, until I felt that we had reached the end of our rope on the plan of operations we had been pursuing, that we must change our tactics, and play our last card, or lose the game. I now determined upon the adoption of the emancipation policy, and without consultation with, or the knowledge of, the cabinet, I prepared the original draft of the proclamation, and, after much anxious thought, called a cabinet meeting upon the subject. This was the last of July, or the first part of the month of August, 1862. This cabinet meeting took place, I think, upon a Saturday. All were present, excepting Mr. Blair, the postmaster-general, who was absent at the opening of the discussion, but came in subsequently. I said to the cabinet that I had resolved upon this step, and called them together, not to ask their advice, but to lay the subject matter of a proclamation before them, suggestions as to which would be in order after they had heard it read. Mr. Lovejoy was in error when he informed you that it excited no comment excepting on the part of Secretary Seward. Various suggestions were offered. Secretary Chase wished the language stronger in reference to the arming of the blacks. Mr. Blair, after he came in, deprecated the policy on the ground that it would cost the administration the fall elections. Nothing, however, was offered that I had not already fully anticipated and settled in my own mind, until Secretary Seward spoke. He said in substance, Mr. President, I approve of the proclamation, but I question the expediency of its issue at this juncture. The depression of the public mind, consequent upon our repeated reverses, is so great that I fear the effect of so important a step. It may be viewed as the last measure of an exhausted government, a cry for help, the government stretching forth its hands to Ethiopia, instead of Ethiopia stretching forth her hands to the government. His idea, said the President, was that it would be considered our last shriek on the retreat. This was his precise expression. Now, continued Mr. Seward, while I approve the measure, I suggest, sir, that you postpone its issue until you can give it to the country supported by military success, instead of issuing it, as would be the case now, upon the greatest disasters of the war. Lincoln continued. The wisdom of the view of the Secretary of State struck me with very great force. It was an aspect of the case that, in all my thought upon the subject, I had entirely overlooked. The result was that I put the draft of the proclamation aside, waiting for a victory. From time to time I added or changed a line, touching it up here and there, anxiously waiting the progress of events. Well, the next news we had was of Pope's disaster at Bull Run things looked darker than ever. Finally came the week of the Battle of Antietam. I determined to wait no longer. Footnote. Honorable George S. Boutwell of Massachusetts stated Lincoln said to him personally, When Lee came over the river, I made a resolution that if McClellan drove him back, I would send the proclamation after him. The Battle of Antietam was fought Wednesday, and until Saturday, 
I could not find out whether we had gained a victory or lost a battle. It was then too late to issue the proclamation that day, and the fact is, I fixed it up a little on Sunday, and Monday I let them have it. End footnote. The news came, I think, on Wednesday, that the advantage was on our side. I was then staying at the Soldiers' Home, three miles out of Washington. Here I finished writing the second draft of the preliminary proclamation, came up on Saturday, called the Cabinet together to hear it, and it was published the following Monday. Another interesting incident occurred at this Cabinet meeting in connection with Secretary Seward. The President had written the important part of the proclamation in these words, that on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, one thousand eight hundred and sixty-three, all persons held as slaves within any state, or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then, thenceforward, and forever, free. And the executive government of the United States including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize the freedom of such persons, and will do no act or acts to repress such persons, or any of them, in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. When I finished reading this paragraph, remarked Lincoln, Mr. Seward stopped me and said, I think, Mr. President, that you should insert after the word recognize and maintain. I replied that I had already fully considered the import of that expression in this connection, but I had not introduced it because it was not my way to promise what I was not entirely sure that I could perform, and I was not prepared to say that I thought we were exactly able to maintain this. But Seward insisted that we ought to take this ground, and the words finally went in. End of chapter 21b Recording by Bill Borst